Section two of The Descent of Man, Part one. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Avai in July two thousand and ten. The Descent of Man, Part one by Charles Darwin. Chapter one The Evidence of the Descent of Man from Some Lower Form, Part two. The celebrated sculptor Mr. Woolner informs me of one little peculiarity in the external ear which he has often observed both in men and women, and of which he perceived the full significance. His attention was first called to the subject whilst at work on his figure of Puck, to which he had given pointed ears. He was thus led to examine the ears of various monkeys, and subsequently more carefully those of man. The peculiarity consists in a little blunt point projecting from the inwardly folded margin, or helix. When present, it is developed at birth, and according to Professor Ludwig Meyer, more frequently in man than in woman. Mr. Woolner made an exact model of one such case, and sent me the accompanying drawing, figure 2. These points not only project inwards toward the center of the ear, but often a little outwards from its plane, so as to be visible when the head is viewed from directly in front or behind. They are variable in size and somewhat in position, standing either a little higher or lower, and they sometimes occur on one ear and not on the other. They are not confined to mankind, for I observed a case in one of the spider monkeys, Atelis Belzebub, in our zoological gardens, and Mr. E. Ray Lancaster informs me of another case in a chimpanzee in the gardens at Hamburg. The helix obviously consists of the extreme margin of the ear folded inwards, and this folding appears to be in some manner connected with the whole external ear being permanently pressed backwards. In many monkeys, which do not stand high in the order, as baboons and some species of macacus, the upper portion of the ear is slightly pointed, and the margin is not at all folded inwards. But if the margin were to be thus folded, a slight point would necessarily project inwards toward the center, and probably a little outwards from the plane of the ear. And this I believe to be their origin in many cases. On the other hand, Professor L. Meyer, in an able paper recently published, maintains that the whole case is one of mere variability, and that the projections are not real ones, but are due to the internal cartilage on each side of the points not having been fully developed. I am quite ready to admit that this is the correct explanation in many instances, as in those figured by Professor Meyer, in which there are several minute points, or the whole margin is sinuous. I have myself seen, through the kindness of Dr. L. Down, the ear of a microcephalus idiot, on which there is a projection on the outside of the helix, and not on the inward folded edge, so that this point can have no relation to a former apex of the ear. Nevertheless, in some cases, my original view that the points are vestiges of the tips of formerly erect and pointed ears still seems to me probable. I think so from the frequency of their occurrence and from the general correspondence in position with that of the tip of a pointed ear. In one case, of which a photograph has been sent me, 
the projection is so large that supposing in accordance with professor meyer's view the ear to be made perfect by the equal development of the cartilage throughout the whole extent of the margin it would have covered fully one-third of the whole ear two cases have been communicated to me one in north america and the other in england in which the upper margin is not at all folded inwards but is pointed so that it closely resembles the pointed ear of an ordinary quadruped in outline in one of these cases which was that of a young child the father compared the ear with the drawing which i have given of the ear of a monkey the sinopithecus niger and says that their outlines are closely similar if in these two cases the margin had been folded inwards in the normal manner an inward projection must have been formed i may add that in two other cases the outline still remains somewhat pointed although the margin of the upper part of the ear is normally folded inwards in one of them however very narrowly the following woodcut figure number three is an accurate copy of a photograph of the fetus of an orang kindly sent me by dr nietzsche in which it may be seen how different the pointed outline of the ear is at this period from its adult condition when it bears a close general resemblance to that of man it is evident that the folding over of the tip of such an ear unless it changed greatly during its further development would give rise to a point projecting inwards on the whole it still seems to me probable that the points in question are in some cases both in men and apes vestiges of a former condition the nictiating membrane or third eyelid with its accessory muscles and other structures is especially well developed in birds and is of much functional importance to them as it can be rapidly drawn across the whole eyeball it is found in some reptiles and amphibians and in certain fishes as in sharks it is fairly well developed in the two lower divisions of the mammalian series namely in the monotremata and marsupials and in some few of the higher mammals as in the walrus but in men the quadrumana and most other mammals it exists as is admitted by all anatomists as a mere rudiment called the semilunar fold the sense of smell is of the highest importance to the greater number of mammals to some as the ruminants in warning them of danger to others as the carnivora in finding their prey to others again as the wild boar for both purposes combined but the sense of smell is of extremely slight service if any even to the dark-coloured races of man in whom it is much more highly developed than in the white and civilised races footnote the account given by humboldt of the power of smell possessed by the natives of south america is well known and has been confirmed by others m Houzeau asserts that he repeatedly made experiments and proved that negroes and indians could recognize persons in the dark by their odor dr w ogle has made some curious observations on the connection between the power of smell and the colouring matter of the mucous membrane of the olfactory region as well as of the skin of the body i have therefore spoken in the text of the dark-coloured races having a finer sense of smell than the white races see his paper medico-chirurgical transactions 
London, Volume 3, 1870, page 276. End footnote. Nevertheless, it does not warn them of danger, nor guide them to their food, nor does it prevent the Esquimaux from sleeping in the most fetid atmosphere, nor many savages from eating half-putrid meat. In Europeans, the power differs greatly in different individuals, as I am assured by an eminent naturalist who possesses this sense highly developed, and who has attended to the subject. Those who believe in the principle of gradual evolution will not readily admit that the sense of smell in its present state was originally acquired by man as he now exists. He inherits the power in an enfeebled and so far rudimentary condition from some early progenitor to whom it was highly serviceable and by whom it was continually used. In those animals which have this sense highly developed, such as dogs and horses, the recollection of persons and of places is strongly associated with their odour, and we can thus perhaps understand how it is, as Dr. Maudsley has truly remarked, that the sense of smell in man, quote, is singularly effective in recalling vividly the ideas and images of forgotten scenes and places, end quote. Man differs conspicuously from all the other primates in being almost naked. But a few short straggling hairs are found over the greater part of the body in the man, and fine down on that of the woman. The different races differ much in hairiness, and in the individuals of the same race the hairs are highly variable, not only in abundance, but likewise in position. Thus, in some Europeans the shoulders are quite naked, whilst in others they bear thick tufts of hair. Footnote. Eschricht, über die Richtung der Haare am menschlichen Körper. Müllers Archiv für Anatomie und Physiologie, 1837, page 47. I shall often have to refer to this very curious paper. End footnote. There can be little doubt that the hairs thus scattered over the body are the rudiments of the uniform hairy coat of the lower animals. This view is rendered all the more probable, as it is known that fine, short, and pale-colored hairs on the limbs and other parts of the body occasionally become developed into thick-set, long, and rather coarse dark hairs, when abnormally nourished near old standing inflamed surfaces. I am informed by Sir James Paget that often several members of a family have a few hairs in their eyebrows much longer than the others, so that even this slight peculiarity seems to be inherited. These hairs, too, seem to have their representatives, for in the chimpanzee and in certain species of macacus, there are scattered hairs of considerable length rising from the naked skin above the eyes and corresponding to our eyebrows. Similar long hairs project from the hairy covering of the superciliary ridges in some baboons. The fine wool-like hair, or so-called lanugo, with which the human fetus during the six months is thickly covered, offers a more curious case. It is first developed during the fifth month, on the eyebrows and face, and especially round the mouth, where it is much longer than that on the head. A moustache of this kind was observed by Eschricht on a female fetus, but this is not so surprising a circumstance as it may at first appear, for the two sexes generally resemble each other in all external characters during an early period of growth. 
the direction and arrangement of the hairs on all parts of the fetal body are the same as in the adult but are subject to much variability the whole surface including even the forehead and ears is thus thickly clothed but it is a significant fact that the palms of the hands and the soles of the feet are quite naked like the inferior surfaces of all four extremities in most of the lower animals as this can hardly be an accidental coincidence the woolly covering of the fetus probably represents the first permanent coat of hair in those mammals which are born hairy three or four cases have been recorded of persons born with their whole bodies and faces thickly covered with fine long hairs and this strange condition is strongly inherited and is correlated with an abnormal condition of the teeth footnote see my variation of animals and plants under domestication volume two page three hundred twenty seven professor alex brandt has recently sent me an additional case of a father and son born in russia with these peculiarities i have received drawings of both from paris End footnote. Professor Alex Brandt informs me that he has compared the hair from the face of a man thus characterized, aged 35, with the lanugo of a fetus, and finds it quite similar in texture. Therefore, as he remarks, the case may be attributed to an arrest of development in the hair, together with its continued growth. Many delicate children, as I have been assured by a surgeon to a hospital for children, have their backs covered by rather long silky hairs, and such cases probably come under the same head. It appears as if the posterior molar or wisdom teeth were tending to become rudimentary in the more civilized races of man. These teeth are rather smaller than the other molars, as is likewise the case with the corresponding teeth in the chimpanzee and orang, and they have only two separate fangs they do not cut through the gums till about the seventeenth year and i have been assured that they are much more liable to decay and are earlier lost than the other teeth but this is denied by some eminent dentists they are also much more liable to vary both in structure and in the period of their development than the other teeth in the melanian races on the other hand the wisdom teeth are usually furnished with three separate fangs and are generally sound they also differ from the other molars in size less than in the caucasian races professor schaffhausen accounts for this difference between the races by quote, the posterior dental portion of the jaw being always shortened end quote, in those that are civilized and this shortening may i presume be attributed to civilized men habitually feeding on soft cooked food and thus using their jaws less i am informed by mr brace that it is becoming quite a common practice in the united states to remove some of the molar teeth of children as the jaw does not grow large enough for the perfect development of the normal number footnote professor montegazza writes to me from florence that he has lately been studying the last molar teeth in the different races of man and has come to the same conclusion as that given in my text that is that in the higher or civilized races they are on the road towards atrophy or elimination End footnote. 
with respect to the alimentary canal i have met with an account of only a single rudiment namely the vermiform appendage of the cecum the cecum is a branch of diverticulum of the intestine ending in a cul-de-sac and is extremely long in many of the lower vegetable feeding mammals in the marsupial koala it is actually more than thrice as long as the whole body it is sometimes produced into a long gradually tapering point and is sometimes constricted in parts it appears as if in consequence of changed diet or habits the cecum had become much shortened in various animals the vermiform appendage being left as a rudiment of the shortened part that this appendage is a rudiment we may infer from its small size and from the evidence which professor canestrini has collected on its variability in man it is occasionally quite absent or again is largely developed the passage is sometimes completely closed for half or two-thirds of its length with the terminal part consisting of a flattened solid expansion in the orang this appendage is long and convoluted in man it arises from the end of the short cecum and is commonly from four to five inches in length being only about the third of an inch in diameter not only is it useless but it is sometimes the cause of death of which fact i have lately heard two instances this is due to small hard bodies such as seeds entering the passage and causing inflammation footnote m c martin de l'unité organique in revue de deux mondes june fifteen eighteen sixty two page sixteen and heckel generelle morphologie volume two page two hundred seventy eight have both remarked on the singular fact of this rudiment sometimes causing death End footnote. in some of the lower quadrumana in the lemuridae and carnivora as well as in many marsupials there is a passage near the lower end of the humerus called the supracondyloid foramen through which the great nerve of the forelimb and often the great artery pass now in the humerus of man there is generally a trace of this passage which is sometimes fairly well developed being formed by a depending hook-like process of bone completed by a band of ligament dr struthers who has closely attended to the subject has now shown that this peculiarity is sometimes inherited as it has occurred in a father and in no less than four out of his seven children footnote with respect to inheritance see dr struthers in the lancet february fifteen eighteen seventy three and another important paper also there january twenty fourth eighteen sixty three page eighty three dr knox as i am informed was the first anatomist who drew attention to this peculiar structure in man see his great artists and anatomists page sixty three see also an important memoir on this process by dr gruber in the bulletin de l'académie impériale de saint petersburg volume twelve eighteen sixty seven page four hundred forty eight End footnote when present the great nerve invariably passes through it and this clearly indicates that it is the homologue and rudiment of the supracondyloid foramen of the lower animals professor turner estimates as he informs me that it occurs in about one per cent of recent skeletons 
but if the occasional development of this structure in man is as seems probable due to reversion it is a return to a very ancient state of things because in the higher quadrumana it is absent there is another foramen or perforation in the humerus occasionally present in man which may be called the intercondyloid this occurs but not constantly in various anthropoid and other apes and likewise in many of the lower animals it is remarkable that this perforation seems to have been present in man much more frequently during ancient times than recently mr busk has collected the following evidence on this head professor boca quote, noticed the perforation in four and a half percent of the arm bones collected in the cimetière du sud at paris and in the grotto of Oroni, the contents of which are referred to the bronze period as many as eight humeri out of thirty-two were perforated but this extraordinary proportion he thinks might be due to the cavern having been a sort of family vault footnote on the case of gibraltar transactions of the international congress of prehistoric archaeology third session eighteen sixty nine page hundred fifty nine professor wyman has lately shown in the fourth annual report peabody museum eighteen seventy one page twenty that this perforation is present in thirty one per cent of some human remains from ancient mounds in the western united states and in florida it frequently occurs in the negro End footnote. again m dupont found thirty per cent of perforated bones in the caves of the valley of the less belonging to the reindeer period whilst m le gay in a sort of dolmen at argenteuil observed twenty five per cent to be perforated and m pruner bay found twenty six per cent in the same condition in bones from vaureal nor should it be left unnoticed that m pruner bay states that this condition is common in guanche skeletons it is an interesting fact that ancient races in this and several other cases more frequently present structures which resemble those of the lower animals than do the modern one chief cause seems to be that the ancient races stand somewhat nearer in the long line of descent to their remote animal-like progenitors in man the os coccyx together with certain other vertebrae hereafter to be described though functionless as a tail plainly represent this part in other vertebrate animals at an early embryonic period it is free and projects beyond the lower extremities as may be seen in the drawing figure one of a human embryo even after birth it has been known in certain rare and anomalous cases to form a small external rudiment of a tail footnote quatrefage has lately collected the evidence on this subject revue de cours scientifique eighteen sixty seven to eighteen sixty eight page six hundred twenty five in eighteen forty fleischmann exhibited a human fetus bearing a free tail which as is not always the case included vertebral bodies and this tail was critically examined by the many anatomists present at the meeting of naturalists at erlangen see marshall in niederländisches archiv für zoologie december eighteen seventy one the os coccyx is short usually including only four vertebrae all ankylosed together 
and these are in a rudimentary condition, for they consist, with the exception of the basal one, of the centrum alone. They are furnished with some small muscles, one of which, as I am informed by Professor Turner, has been expressly described by Teile as a rudimentary repetition of the extensor of the tail, a muscle which is so largely developed in many mammals. The spinal cord in man extends only as far downwards as the last dorsal or first lumbar vertebrae, but a thread-like structure, the filum terminale, runs down the axis of the sacral part of the spinal canal and even along the back of the coccygeal bones. The upper part of this filament, as Professor Turner informs me, is undoubtedly homologous with the spinal cord, but the lower part apparently consists merely of the pia mater, or vascular investing membrane. Even in this case, the os coccyx may be said to possess a vestige of so important a structure as the spinal cord, though no longer enclosed within a bony canal. The following fact, for which I am also indebted to Professor Turner, shows how closely the os coccyx corresponds with the true tail in the lower animals. Lushka has recently discovered at the extremity of the coccygeal bones a very peculiar convoluted body which is continuous with the middle sacral artery, and this discovery led Krause and Meyer to examine the tail of a monkey, macacus, and of a cat, in both of which they found a similarly convoluted body, though not at the extremity. The reproductive system offers various rudimentary structures, but these differ in one important respect from the foregoing cases. Here we are not concerned with the vestige of a part which does not belong to the species in an efficient state, but with a part efficient in the one sex and represented in the other by a mere rudiment. Nevertheless, the occurrence of such rudiments is as difficult to explain, on the belief of the separate creation of each species, as in the foregoing cases. Hereafter, I shall have to recur to these rudiments, and shall show that their presence generally depends merely on inheritance, that is, on parts acquired by one sex having been partially transmitted to the other. I will in this place only give some instances of such rudiments. It is well known that in the males of all mammals, including man, rudimentary mammae exist. These, in several instances, have become well developed and have yielded a copious supply of milk. Their essential identity in the two sexes is likewise shown by their occasional sympathetic enlargement in both during an attack of the measles. The vesicula prostatica, which has been observed in many male mammals, is now universally acknowledged to be the homologue of the female uterus, together with the connected passage. It is impossible to read Leukart's able description of this organ and his reasoning without admitting the justness of his conclusion. This is especially clear in the case of those mammals in which the true female uterus bifurcates, for in the males of these the vesicula likewise bifurcates. Footnote. Leukart, in Todd's Cyclopedia of Anatomy, 1849-52, to volume 4, page 1415. In man, this organ is only from three to six lines in length, but, like so many other rudimentary parts, it is variable in development as well as in other characters. End footnote. 
some other rudimentary structures belonging to the reproductive system might have been here adduced. The bearing of the three great classes of facts now given is unmistakable, but it would be superfluous fully to recapitulate the line of argument given in detail in my Origin of Species. The homological construction of the whole frame in the members of the same class is intelligible if we admit their descent from a common progenitor, together with their subsequent adaptation to diversified conditions. On any other view, the similarity of pattern between the hand of a man or monkey, the foot of a horse, the flipper of a seal, the wing of a bat, etc., is utterly inexplicable. Footnote. Professor Bianconi, in a recently published work illustrated by admirable engravings, La Théorie Darwinienne et la Création dite Indépendante, 1874, endeavors to show that homological structures in the above and other cases can be fully explained on mechanical principles in accordance with their uses. No one has shown so well how admirably such structures are adapted for their final purpose, and this adaptation can, as I believe, be explained through natural selection. In considering the wing of a bat, he brings forward what appears to me, to use August Combe's words, a mere metaphysical principle, namely, the preservation, quote, in its integrity of the mammalian nature of the animal, end quote. In only a few cases does he discuss rudiments, and then only those parts which are partially rudimentary, such as the little hoofs of the pig and ox, which do not touch the ground, these he shows clearly to be of service to the animal. It is unfortunate that he did not consider such cases as the minute teeth, which never cut through the jaw in the ox, or the mammae of male quadrupeds, or the wings of certain beetles, existing under the soldered wing covers, or the vestiges of the pistil and stamens in various flowers, and many other such cases. Although I greatly admire Professor Bianconi's work, yet the belief now held by most naturalists seems to me left unshaken, that homological structures are inexplicable on the principle of mere adaptation. End footnote. It is no scientific explanation to assert that they have all been formed on the same ideal plan. With respect to development, we can clearly understand, on the principle of variations supervening at the rather late embryonic period, and being inherited at a corresponding period, how it is that the embryos of wonderfully different forms should still retain, more or less perfectly, the structure of the common progenitor. No other explanation has ever been given of the marvelous fact that the embryos of a man, dog, seal, bat, reptile, etc., can at first hardly be distinguished from each other. In order to understand the existence of rudimentary organs, we have only to suppose that a former progenitor possessed the parts in question in a perfect state, and that under changed habits of life they became greatly reduced, either from simple disuse, or through the natural selection of those individuals which were least encumbered with a superfluous part, aided by the other means previously indicated. Thus, we can understand how it has come to pass that man and all other vertebrate animals have been constructed on the same general model, 
why they pass through the same early stages of development, and why they retain certain rudiments in common. Consequently, we ought frankly to admit their community of descent. To take any other view is to admit that our own structure, and that of all the animals around us, is a mere snare laid to entrap our judgment. This conclusion is greatly strengthened if we look to the members of the whole animal series, and consider the evidence derived from their affinities or classification, their geographical distribution and geological succession. It is only our natural prejudice and that arrogance which made our forefathers declare that they were descended from demigods, which leads us to demur to this conclusion. But the time will before long come when it will be thought wonderful that naturalists, who were well acquainted with the comparative structure and development of man and other mammals, should have believed that each was the work of a separate act of creation. End of section 2